Amen. You guys can have a seat. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for being here this morning. I'm just going to go ahead and address the elephant in the room because some of you out there are like, all right, who's this guy and why is he wearing those pants? And, uh, <laughs> and what's up with his mustache? Did he drive a stagecoach here? Like, no, all right. Listen, I am Joe, and I get to lead our high school and young adult ministry here at the chapel, and uh, my daughter thinks these pants are cool, so that's why I'm wearing them. Uh, but yeah, I'm excited to uh, share this morning with you, and um, like I said, I get to lead high school and young adult ministry, and if you are a high school student, I just want you to know, Ryan talked a little bit about our last Sunday event. We're having a whiteout night, so you want to wear white or light-colored clothes, clothes because we're going to play dodgeball with like literally with dodgeballs dipped in the liquid neon paint. So if you are a high school student or you know a high school student, you don't want them to miss this. There's more information out at the Welcome Center. You could take a flyer with you. And if you need transportation, let me know because we, um, Mike Barr, our high school guy here in Port Clinton, will give you a ride over there. He has a group of students that go. So um, yeah, so with working with high school and young adult students, I've heard this phrase before, and you might know what this is. It's called a DTR. Who knows what a DTR is? Come on, somebody tell me, what's a DTR? Anybody? Anybody know what a DTR is? Yes, what's a DTR? Define the relationship, right? That's a define the relationship talk. So when a couple has a DTR, they are deciding what needs to happen next in their relationship. You know, it's like, hey, we've been together for a few months now. Are we boyfriend, girlfriend? Are we just brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I getting friend zoned? Like, what's going on here or whatever? It's basically like, what are we? You know, and, and when, it, you know, it might go down like, hey, we're going to make it official, like social media official, like putting it on Instagram or Snapchat. And if you hit that level, buddy, you might as well book the reception hall. It's happening, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I've been, I don't have to, I'm so glad I don't really have to have a define the relationship talk anymore. My wife and I have been together for 10 years. You know, we have kids together. It's, it's pretty serious, okay? I, I, you know, I don't ever have to be like, hey, do you like me? You know, it's, you know, I kind of get it. This is how serious our relationship is, all right? My wife, as a joke for Father's Day, got me this shirt, and it is a tank top with her face all over it. Yeah. Joke's on her. I wore it to the gym, okay? Because it's kind of like maybe you don't see the ring on the finger. You're going to see this shirt, okay? And people were avoiding me for some reason. I don't understand it. You women are out there like, that's so crazy. I would never buy something like that. Like, where'd you even get that? Like, what's the website? I want to know. You wouldn't buy that. Anyway, uh, I'm, I'm, you know... For the, re and the reason that I talk about the DTR is for the rest of our time this morning, I want to pose this question, okay? And you're going to think I'm crazy, I'm not. But what if Jesus wants to have a DTR? What if it's time for Jesus and you to sort of define or maybe redefine the relationship? Because in, the, in, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus is going to address uh, seven churches, the seven churches that John is writing to, and you're going to notice a consistent pattern in Jesus' DTR. You're going to notice three things. You're going to notice recognition, what the church has gotten right. You're going to notice rebuke, what the church has gotten wrong. And you're going to notice a, re a remedy, how to fix the problem. Well, if you remember last week from Revelation 1, John saw each church as a lampstand, and that symbolizes the church reflecting God's light 
and presence and love into a dark and broken and desperate world. That's who we are, church. And that's why Jesus' DTR is so critical. Because, church, that we have to be healthy on the inside as a church if we're going to reflect God's love on the outside to other people. Because you may, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. We are the Jesus. We may be the only Jesus that a lot of people see. And so you're going to be a reflection of Jesus' love into this world. Well, with this in mind, I want to encourage us all, all of us to, to, to think deeply about this message. And here's what you might do, because I have a tendency to do this. I hear a really convicting message, and I was like, oh, man, so-and-so, they need to hear this. My mother-in-law, never mind. So I'm thinking of somebody who needs to hear this, right? But here's what I want you to do. While I'm talking, instead of thinking of the people you know that they're like, man, they need to hear this, I just want you to think if maybe it's time for you to hear it. And what is God, through his spirit, telling you this morning? Because, church, so much is at stake if we don't take this seriously. And so with this in mind, <clears throat> excuse me, with this in mind, uh, with Jesus' recognition, we want to start with the recognition of what the churches are doing right and, and, in order, and so that we can order in order that we continue to do these things. Uh, there's, num there's numerous things that these churches are doing right and things that Jesus is pleased with, and we, we should follow in their footsteps. And so just to let you know, we're going to jump around a little bit. So we're going to be going back and forth from chapter 2 to chapter 3. So you're going to have to be nimble, all right? But the words will also be on the screen. I see some of you have your Bible, so feel free to read along. But this is Revelation 2, 18 and 19. It says this, Write a letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like, the, are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all of these things. So Thyatira wasn't, a prominent, wasn't as prominent as some of the other churches, but it received Jesus' longest message of all the seven churches. He recognized the church in Thyatira for numerous things that they did right. One of them was that they truly loved each other with a practical, selfless type of love. They didn't just say it. They, they, they showed it through their actions. They trusted in Jesus, especially when it was difficult to do so, especially during persecution. They were faithful in hardship and suffering, and they faithfully served both in the ways that they accomplished tasks and the way that they gave from their finances and their resources. I believe that if Jesus was here today in person, he would recognize those of us who are doing the same things. You know, if you're going out of your way to show love to people, Jesus wants to encourage you to continue to do this because your love for other people and the way that you live that out proves that your faith is real. Not the Bible verse in your Instagram bio, not the bumper sticker on your car, not your cross necklace. Those are not the things that prove that your faith in Jesus is real. The way that you live your life is your faith in action. If you're trusting Jesus, especially when you're weak, when you're, when you're vulnerable, when you're hurting, when things are not going well, he promises to be strong on your behalf. If you're serving Jesus through your financial giving or the giving of your time, he wants to remind you that he is going to bless you for doing so. You see, as Jesus defines the relationship with these churches and with us, 
He recognizes what they're doing right, which includes perseverance, it includes faithfulness, it includes love for one another, and it also includes sacrifice. And we have to keep doing these things at all costs to remain healthy and fruitful. But here's the bad news. Jesus' DTR was not all positive. Jesus also rebukes the church for the things that they have gotten wrong. You know, just like a good and, you know, a loving parent corrects their kids when their, their behavior, when the child is doing something wrong so that they don't cause harm to themselves or somebody other, Jesus is doing this for his church too. He says, I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Parents, you know, if you have kids and they're doing something that's destructive or damaging, you know, and you try to stop them, they think you're ruining their lives. You know, I have two teenagers and a five-year-old, like, pray for me. Uh, it's like you try to turn them away from doing something harmful and they think you're just ruining their, their lives. Like you just love discipline. It's like, no, I don't love discipline. I love you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discipline you to keep you from doing those things. If I didn't do those things, that's not love. That's apathy. So Jesus does this as well which then leads us to the church in Ephesus, which we're going to find in chapter 2. On the outside, everything looked great. They believed the correct doctrine, and they endured suffering without giving up. But as we're going to find out, you really can't fake what's going on in the inside. So it says this, Revelation 2, chapter, or verses 4 and 5, it says, But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. The NASB says, says this a little more strongly. It says this, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The imagery here is of a couple who is head over heels in love with each other. You know, let's go back to high school. You know, you, you meet someone, and it's like, we're going to be together forever, right? We have a song. I had a song. It was All My Life by Casey and JoJo. You know. That's the person you're going to be with for the rest of your life. And you do crazy stuff when you fall in love, right? You stay up all night on the phone, you know, and you, high schoolers here, like, you talked on the phone? Like, yeah, it was a cordless phone, but it was a phone. And when the battery died, you had to get the regular, the regular landline. You would stay up all night before school. You know, you'd be so tired. You'd spend what little money you had working at your job for that person. You know, you'd do anything for that person. But then, over time, something starts to change, right? Those feelings sort of plateau, or they may even fall away. And then with couples, it's like, you know, you maybe see this in marriages. Maybe this is happening in your own marriage. It's like you still live together. You parent together. You socialize together. But you're just like, you're almost like roommates. You know, you're simply just going through the motions. Love is replaced with duty and passion is replaced with apathy. And so the same thing, Jesus says the same thing is happening to the church. He says, at first, your love for me was the most important thing in your life. I was your everything, but then something changed. And so the church is now going through the motions. Love is replaced with duty, and passion is replaced with apathy. And here's a hard question. If, is it possible that if Jesus were speaking to us, he would say the same thing? Have we left our first love, and, and, and maybe you don't even realize it? You know, our once passionate zeal 
for Jesus has, has fallen away, leaving us apathetic and disinterested. You know, I think about when I first became a Christian, man, there was just something incredible about that. And I see that in young people now, and I love it, and it challenges me because I see young people who just start following Jesus or anybody who just starts following Jesus, and it's like they have this passion, and they might not be theologically correct on everything. It's maybe like ignorance on fire, but it challenges me. And I'll tell you what, that's how I used to be. And if I'm honest with you, church, this message was difficult to give today because I'm struggling through this. There's a lot of times in my life, especially lately, in this season of my life where I felt like, I'm just kind of going through things. And I think that there's three reasons why this starts. There's a lot of reasons, but I want to highlight three of them. One is the duty of religion. You know, instead of resting in the finished work of what Jesus has done for us, we feel like we have to perform for Jesus. I mean, this happens to me. I feel like, all right, if I don't get up at this time and I don't read my Bible this much and if I don't pray this much and if I don't do these things, if I don't go to church, if I don't go to small group, if I don't do all these things, then God is going to be mad at me, right? And then I feel like when something bad happens, like true story, Friday, I was working on somebody's house because I have a small business and I fell through their ceiling. I swear that happened. And uh, I'm like, Okay, what did I do, God? I'm like going back through my mind. Did I say something? Did I do something? Did I post something? I was like, why is God disciplining me like that? I'm like in this transaction with God where it's like, okay, God, if I do my part, then you do your part, right? And, and a love relationship with Jesus has turned into a religious transaction. And when this happens, our love for Jesus is replaced with a cheap form of religion, which leads to duty instead of delight, the second one is this, is, is the allure of our culture. You know, over time, we start to think that there's other things that are going to fulfill us where Jesus should. And sure, we would never say that, right? Sunday morning, you're like, no, Jesus is everything. But in the reality, when you look at your life, it's like, well, yeah, Jesus plus this, plus my career or my house or, you know, my, my education or my academics, my sports, just all of these things, whatever it might be. And so we forsake our first love for Jesus for something else. And if you say it's Jesus, but also, then that also is actually what your God is. So we start finding our worth in our money, start finding your worth in your status. You seek, you seek to live for the approval of other people. And you, know, you might believe that what you look like on the outside is more important than, than your character on the inside. And and I'm not immune to this. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm telling you I'm wrestling with this one as well, too. I was reading through Mark, the, the book of Mark this week, and the commentary just floored me because it's at this point where Jesus is in the, is in the temple, and he heals a man's shriveled hand on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees were so threatened by this because the Pharisees, the Pharisees, they were threatened by what Jesus was doing because they weren't following his religious rules. And here's what the commentary said. It said, the Pharisees valued their status in the community and their opportunity for personal gain so much that they lost sight of their goal as religious leaders, and this is me, to point people toward God. The next one is the toxicity of self. The number one way that we forget and forsake Jesus is when we cling to ourselves because it's impossible to live for self and for Jesus the same time. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, he has to take up his cross daily. And we don't understand the gravity of that. People who heard that would have been appalled. And I'll tell you what this plays out like. I'm going to lead a team to Mexico in a couple weeks 
for a short-term mission. And I've done this, this will be my ninth time. And the primary reason why people get excited but don't go is because they worry about their safety. But let me ask you this, church. When did Jesus ever, ever call us to a safe life? When you look at the life of the disciples and Jesus himself, was their life safe? Did it turn out well? Did they all retire? No, none of them, except for John who was, who was imprisoned on an island. But, but we, have this, we have this illusion that following Jesus means that he owes us safety and he doesn't. But then we worry about our safety or our financial security or our agendas. And we're like, and, and it keeps us from following Jesus. You know, you think about your financial security and maybe it's like, hey, I know there's somebody in need. It's a family member. It's somebody from the church. It's a neighbor. It's a friend. And you're like, I know I could help this out. But I can't think of like, man, how hard would it be if we had to just take our standard of living down a notch and we'd have to do that in order to help these people? Or our agendas and our schedule. I am, I am a type A personality. I wake up in the morning and I have a list of things I need to get done. Like, I love lists. You ask my wife, I got lists for everything, all right? I love checking stuff off a list, all right? But here's my problem is I have a list of everything I need to do and I have every hour of my day tied up that I don't have any room for God's Holy Spirit to work in me because what I found is that ministry is often disguised as inconvenience, because people's lives don't follow my task list. People's problems don't fit into my schedule. And then I start to see those people as a problem instead of a person that God is calling me to put myself aside and serve them. Maybe it's your stuff, it's your future, it's your goals, it's your hopes and dreams that keep you from making Jesus your first love. And what's scary, church, about Jesus' rebuke is that if we continue to for, forsake our love for him, he says, he will remove the lampstand from our midst, which means he won't use us to impact the world, which is exactly what we are called to do. Church, you and I are called together, individually and corporately, to be agents of God's healing and transforming grace into a broken world. So we have to return to our first love. I want you to look at one more reprimand from Jesus. He says this, and we're going to be back in Revelation 3. He says, I know the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything that I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor, and blind, and naked. I'm glad those are his words and not mine. This text is often used to challenge Christ followers to, to get off the fence and, and stop being lukewarm in their faith. However, I'm, this isn't exactly what's happening here. This map is going to help you to understand a little bit of what Jesus is, is getting at. See, Laodicea is situated be, between Colossae and Hierapolis. And because of the distance between the two, Laodicea did not have access to the cold water springs available to Colossae or the hot water springs available to Hierapolis. So as a result, Laodicea had water that was just lukewarm, room temperature. There's this professor, his name is Ian Paul. He makes this, um, he makes this point in, in, the, in the Tyndale New Testament commentary. He says, hot water is good for something, healing and therapy. Cold water is good for something cooling and, and refreshing. Lukewarm water is good for nothing and would make the, the drinker want to spit it out. 
It was not the state of their faith that Jesus was criticizing, but the lack of fruit in their lives. Their water was useless. Do we have any coffee drinkers in here? Of course we do. This is a church, okay? Hot coffee, amazing. Iced coffee, incredible. You ever pick up a cup of coffee and you didn't know it wasn't yours and it's been like sitting there for a couple hours and you take a drink and it's disgusting for two reasons. One, it's not your coffee. Two, it's like room temperature. You've never drank room temperature coffee and be like, mm, that's, that's great. No, you like want to spit it out or like, you know, choke it down if you're in front of people or whatever. But what it's saying is like, it's gross, right? And he's saying that this kind of water is gross and, and worse than that, it's, it's not good for anything. Jesus is saying that the believers in Laodicea are like that water. Because, see, you can memorize the Bible. You could study the Bible. You could, you could get a Ph.D. in the Bible. But if we don't let the Bible live through us and in us, and if people can't see that we belong to Jesus by our everyday actions and lifestyles, then Jesus says to proclaim that we are his followers is absolutely disgusting to him. Here's what it's saying. It was saying that, that there was the lack of fruit in their lives. So if we go to what, what else Jesus said about fruit, he said this in John 15. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, meaning that they change you, that they live in you, then you will produce much fruit. He says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Amen. Well, what does that fruit look like? Well, Paul wrote about it in, in Galatians. He said, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Let me ask you, church, is that what your life is characterized by? Because you can know the Bible, but without staying connected to Jesus, without letting his words live in you, it will never produce fruit in your life. Friends, do our lives on the outside line up with what we say we believe on the inside? Do people walk away from us with a better or a worse view of Jesus? We don't know a lot about the Laodicean Christians. According to Jesus, though, they thought highly of themselves, and they thought of their wealth that made them self-sufficient, and they were probably a part of this religious idea that if they were wealthy, it was because they had a right relationship with God, and that's what their blessing looked like. And of course, we wouldn't use these terms, but we don't need to search far for examples of how wealth and self-sufficient approach to faith characterize American Christianity. So the critical question is this. Would Jesus use lukewarm to describe our church or us as individuals? You know, as a church, would he say that he is delighted with the chapel, or would he say that he's disgusted with us based upon our love, our generosity, and the way that we use our resources to shine his light, his love into the world? Some bad news. But with Jesus, there's always good news. Jesus having this defining the relationship with us is so important. And it's so important that you internalize it instead of thinking about who else needs to hear it. Because not only does he tell us what we, what we must continue to do, but it also should wake us up to what we may be doing wrong. But what's most critical is how Jesus ends the conversation with the remedy. How to fix the problem. Which brings us to the final thing that Jesus says in chapter 3. Again to the church in Laodicea. He says this, look, look. I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. 
Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone who has ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. When you look at all of Jesus' rebukes as a whole in Revelation 2 and 3, you quickly realize that the church at large has a lot of problems that need to be fixed when this was written around 90 AD. And quite frankly, if you fast forward to 2021, not much has changed, especially here in America. You know, over the past year and a half, especially, the American church has been more fractured than I've ever seen as a leader here. There's been more infighting, division, and lack of humility and forgiveness. It's at an all-time high, and nobody wants to take the blame. We're always pointing the fingers at other people. It's like, well, it's those people who vote that way. No, it's those people who voted that way. No, it's those people who believe this about masks or vaccine, or these people who believe this about social issues and political issues. And nobody's willing to understand that those are all peripherals, and Jesus is the most important thing. This breaks Jesus' heart more than we'll ever know because it fractures his family and dulls his light into the world. When Christians are fighting amongst each other about things that are not of the gospel, I don't think it makes anybody look at us and say, man, I want to be a part of that. So what do we do? Well, you can ignore it. You can continue to point fingers. You can try to justify it. Or, church, you can answer the door. Jesus' remedy is, for the church in Laodicea and this remedy for us as a church as well as to answer the door. Jesus knocking on the door is a metaphor to symbolize Jesus wanting to establish or reestablish his relationship with us. That though we have pushed him out in a thousand different little ways through the way that we live our lives, he hasn't left us. The opposite is true. He's been knocking at the doors of our lives and the doors of our church the entire time. And so let me ask you, have you forsaken your, your first love? If so, Jesus is knocking at the door. He isn't here to point the finger. He isn't here to condemn you. He wants to be your first love. Have we pushed Jesus unintentionally out of the chapel? If Jesus were alive today, would he feel welcomed here? Jesus is knocking at the door. And he wants to come in and lead us again. He wants us to be known for our love and for our grace and our forgiveness, which is evidence that Jesus is at our table. And let me tell you this. You might be here this morning and you're like, hey, I'm just checking this thing out. I don't know about all of this. I'm still, I have so many questions about Jesus and about the Bible and about God, and I just want you to know that you are welcome here. That this is a place where you can come and wrestle through those things. But I want you to know that you were created with a plan and a purpose, that God created every single person here with a plan and a purpose, and you're not here by accident. You see, we were created to love and to glorify God, but every single one of us, every single person on this stage and in those seats has through our attitudes, through our hearts, through our actions, through our words, and through our, through our thoughts, pushed God away and said, I don't want what you want. I want to be in charge. I want to be my own God so you can kick rocks. I'm going to do things my own way. And God, if he was fair in his justice, could have condemned the world, wiped his hands clean and said, okay, then you will get what you deserve for that choice. And that is eternal separation from God, which Jesus talked about as hell. And yet here's the crazy part, that even in that, Jesus looked at you and God looked at me and he loved you and he loved me so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, to live a perfect 
life and die in our place, the death that we deserve to die. And then three days later, he rose again and he, and he defeated death and he overcame sin. And through placing our faith in him, by answering that door, we receive eternal life. So if you are here and you've never answered that door, Jesus is knocking for you too. Jesus is knocking. May we open that door. Let me pray for us. God, I pray for myself and for every single person in here, Lord, that you, in your grace, would rebuke us. That you would show us, God, where we have pushed you out of our lives and out of our church. And that, God, by your grace, you would open our hearts and you would make it clear to us that we need to answer the door. Jesus, thank you for this church. Thank you for this campus. Even this morning, I have seen their kindness and their love and their generosity even towards me. Thank you for them. We love you in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you all